0: hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series if you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events please visit skylightbooks.com where you can browse our inventory buy books and join our friends with benefits club you can also follow us on twitter tumblr and facebook to speak to a real live bookseller please call 323-660-1175 thanks for your support and enjoy
1: Um, we're so happy to have you with us here today let's give a warm round of applause
2: Hello, my name is Angelina Sainz, and I have completed my first year as an MFA candidate with the graduate writing program at Otis College of Art and Design. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce our graduating writers this evening. For the last year, I have had the privilege to experience all of these writers wrestle the stories and poems out of their hearts and onto the page. While juggling long workdays, attending classes, doing the homework, commuting, and managing their daily lives, each of them has also kept a daily appointment with their writing. In Spanish, there is a saying, Entre lo dicho y lo hecho hay mucho trecho. This could be applied to writing by saying, There is a long distance between saying you are a writer and actually writing. The graduates sitting before us today are writers. They do the arduous work of bringing out the stories and poems from their hearts onto the page. You cannot describe the work they do as simply writing down what is in their head. They are translators. Walter Benjamin describes translation as the task of releasing in his own language that pure language that is under the spell of another, to liberate the language imprisoned in a work in his recreation of that work. Each of the readers tonight have the courage to keep coming back to their work and releasing it from the spell of their hearts to liberate it for us, the audience. With that, I would like to introduce our first writer... Crystal Mae Statler received a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from the University of California, Merced, and will earn a Master of Arts degree in graduate writing from Otis College of Art and Design, where she worked on her thesis entitled, A Life Around. Her work utilizes collage to explore tensions of responsibility in sexual trauma, family dysfunction, and religion. While at Otis, she was a member of the Otis Books Seismicity Editions Publishing Team, where she completed typesetting and book design of Alan's Lonely Beginnings and Amelia Rosalie's Hospital Series, translated by Diana Thoam. Continuing her passion for life as a writer, athlete and humanitarian, she plans to establish her small press, May Be Books, with its first edition to be published by the end of 2017 that celebrates experimental works in chapbook form. Crystal May Statler.
3: Thank you, Angelina. Thank you all for coming tonight. I will be reading from my thesis, A Life Around. June 23rd, 2008. Dear Dylan, that was so nice of you to send me money. Your heart was in the right place, and kindness shouldn't go unrewarded. I felt stupid and ungrateful for tearing up the $20 bill and flushing it down the toilet before I got a chance to eat it. My Sally said after I flushed it, well, at least you paid the sewer bill. You can't send cash. Being caught with it would get me another charge. I only make seven fifty a month. That don't buy nothing in here. I thank God for you and how we're talking now. There must be more we both need to learn from each other. I don't know what physical and emotional things people have done to you. I shudder at the thought. But if you will look hard enough, some day God's glory will shine through. I'm sorry I was a lousy father I'm not sure if you'd been safe whether I was there or not because I'm just like my dad he would have loved you like he loved his own daughter that he molested for 10 years since she was 4 and somewhere along the way she had a relationship with him I always hated him for making me feel like I was a pervert for thinking they were having sex when all the while they were the very thing that bothered me about him I grew up to do If there was an island waiting for all the child molesters to go to and they set off a nuke bomb, I'd be the first one there and push the button. Jesus forgives me. My victim forgives me. Her mother, Elle, forgives me. I can't forgive me. I'm thankful you weren't my victim. I'm a nice older man now who always laughs at myself when I get out of the shower because my hair stands straight up. I wonder about your mom, S. How long has she been homeless? Why do you think she has such a problem staying stable? Look, about the money, that $20 could have bought you a half gallon of gas. I sent you three money slips. It just takes longer to get to me, but I'm going nowhere so I can wait. I can buy phone time for 10 cents a minute with no connection fee. Plus, it allows me to call cell phones like yours. It won't cost you nothing, so we'll talk mouth to ear instead of hand to eye. I will be leading the six-house service where we get to do Christian spoofs on commercials like this one with the Energizer Bunny. We'll put a battery that says Holy Ghost inside, and his drum will be the Holy Bible. He will walk from one end of the altar to the other, and the narrator will say, The Holy Ghost, it keeps going and going. You know, stuff like that. The whole service will be about salvation. I'm a salvation preacher. I've found the most important thing in life is relationships. If you've got regular pictures of you laying around and don't want them anymore, I'll take them. Pictures like you in your car, by your house, in your room. You know, I asked B for pictures of his apartment, and he sent me a picture of his toilet. That was weird. It's almost lockdown time. Maybe all the bad things that happen to us is for the glory. Love always and forever. <coughs> July 2nd, 2015. Dear Dylan... It occurred to me while talking to Granny on the phone that all you've ever heard are bad stories about your past. From my perspective, I didn't see you as abandoned or sad or mistreated when you were with me. I have fond memories of you, me, and B in Sacramento during the second abduction. Not to say that life was picture perfect, but there was love. Here's a story for you. In Sacramento... While you were with me, B, and T.R., one time we rented this apartment that had no air conditioning, and boy, was it hot. While T.R., you, and B slept, I stayed up all night on meth. But to be fair, I was always on meth. I was fanning you guys with a big piece of cardboard. I moved your beds closer together so I could get both of you at the same time. Then briefly I'd go in our room and fan T.R. while she slept, then back to your room. Most of my time was in your room, The next day, I had asked how you slept, if you were hot. You were so adorable, saying, No, you slept great. Was it hot? That made me feel good about looking after you. Yes, I was on drugs, but for the most part, I was what you call a functioning drug addict. I went to work on drugs. I wasn't necessarily a monster every time I was on them. Another time, you came to me crying and talking at the same time. I couldn't understand what the heck you were saying. Finally, after getting you calmed down, you said you had a motorcycle stuck in your nose. I said, what, in disbelief? Because clearly I could see a motorcycle wasn't stuck in your nose. But you assured me that there was one in there. I wasn't panicked or concerned because I'm looking right at you and there was no motorcycle in your nose. Then you went back into your bedroom and brought me B's little neon green motorcycle and pointed to the side mirror on the motorcycle that was gone. You said, this one is in my nose. So we, my friends, PA and DY, got a flashlight and looked up your nose. And sure enough, you stuck that mirror in your nose and it broke off in there. Then I panicked. I was scared that it would go down your throat and you'd choke. But DY was calm, cool, and collected. We laid you down on the counter. DY got the hemostats that would clip onto our marijuana roaches. Don't worry, we cleaned them. And he performed surgery on your nose and removed the mirror. You were calm through the whole thing. Once you convinced me that there was indeed a motorcycle stuck in your nose, I was a mess until I knew you were safe. But you were a trooper. I didn't get to have a whole lot of time with you when you were little, but I cherished every moment I had. And now I get to look forward to the future with you in it, or I get to have a future with you in it. I am really, really excited about that. I daydream about spending time with you, working out, running, sitting, and talking. I want a chance to show you that not everyone wants to hurt, leave, or manipulate you. One of my highest priorities is to show my family that I am not who I once was. Okay, it took 48 years, but I think I made it. I just know that since you've given me an opportunity to be part of your life, I know I won't let you down. I know I am a bum right now because I can't do for myself, But it won't always be like that for me. I will succeed. I will overcome. My strength is in Christ, and I can do all things through Him. Don't believe in me. Believe in Him who's in me. I don't mean to be all preachy, but I write what I feel. And I'm mostly a very happy, content, blessed, peaceful man these days. And I know that God has blessed me. He's kept me safe in here for nine years. It's nothing that I've achieved on my own. With His testimony, though... I know that God's love for me is not going to stop once I'm free. He's going to finish what he started for us, and I believe that with every fiber of my being. You have no idea how you made my Father's Day on the phone at Granny's. That was hands down the best Father's Day I've had in over ten years. Love always and forever. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Crystal. Uh, Our next reader is Justin Wilson. He is a Southern California native and naval special warfare veteran. He served 12 years completing multiple combat deployments in support of the global war on terror. After leaving the Navy in 2010, Justin decided to pursue his passion for tattooing and the arts He received his BFA from Otis College of Art and Design in 2015 and is currently completing his MFA uh, at Otis College of Art and Design. Justin.
0: Thank you, everybody. I'm going to read an excerpt from my novel, Period of Darkness. It's a work of fiction about a guy named Jack, how he grows up in naval special warfare and tries to balance the multiple deployments his job requires and his toxic relationship with Beth, who he is constantly on the verge of losing. This scene takes place later in the book, and Jack is on a training trip in northern Michigan. His teammates have all gone back to the hotel, and only Jack and the bartender named Amy are left in the bar. They're just watching TV and drinking on a quiet night. (laughs) <laughs> an episode and a half into gray's anatomy marathon the door of the bar swung open and shut a dark-haired dwarf walked around the corner and climbed up the empty seat right next to jack the dwarf was swearing and spitting into his cell phone saying things so vile and disgusting that they made even jack uncomfortable shut the fuck up you fucking cum dumpster fuck you the dwarf screamed into his flip phone before snapping it shut what the fuck are you looking at the dwarf asked jack me well there's an empty bar and you sat right next to me and with an entrance like that who wouldn't be looking at you jack replied the dwarf stared down jack for a moment then yelled to amy who was immersed in her show a shot and a beer amy without breaking her gaze from the screen she opened the stainless steel cooler at her waist and pulled out a cheap domestic beer and poured him a shot of well whiskey sounds like you're having a rough night jack said trying to break the ice the dwarf held a pensive silence before he took a shot and drank his entire beer in one go. Fucking A right, the dwarf said, stifling a burp. How's your mom, Sam? Amy asked. She's on her way. Ask her your fucking self. Jack immediately straightened up in his chair and made eye contact with Amy with a smile of excitement. Jack took off his jacket and hung it on the back of his bar stool, settling in for what could potentially be a very fun night. The thought of two angry dwarves cussing and yelling at each other warmed Jack's heart, and he ordered another beer. (laughs) Jack and Sam made the usual small talk, like what was there to do around there, what was California like, but both never broke their line of sight of the TV. During the commercial breaks, they would banter a little more and actually look at each other, but everything out of Sam's mouth was so horrible that the novelty quickly wore off, and Jack's questions slowly ceased. The door opened and they were hit with a blast of icy air. A woman of average height entered the bar. She was rail thin with black stringy hair that reminded Jack of a swamp witch. She approached Sam, who was now standing on his chair. Then they embraced and kissed. The kiss was a lover's kiss. On the mouth, with tongue. <laughs> After the kiss, the woman sat opposite of Jack, next to him. She placed an elbow on the bar and rested her head on her hand, staring at Jack as if sizing up her next meal. "'I'm a fisherwoman,' the woman whistled through the few teeth she had remaining. "'White fish.' The woman spoke, but Jack was oblivious. His entire focus was on counting her teeth, an upper left canine, a a lateral incisor, and a lone bottom lateral incisor. Three. She has three visible teeth.' (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> she held out a limp hand, uh, a limp wristed hand for uh, for Jack to shake. Reluctantly and fearful of offending, he shook her hand. She smiled. Fishing was good. Let's get wasted. "Ma, first rounds on you," the dwarf said. Jack felt like he was kicked in the face and before he could catch himself, he said a little too loudly, "Ma, as in mom, as in this woman is your mother?" fuck yeah she is where do you think I got my good looks Sam reached across in front of Jack and grabbed his mother's face with both hands full of little sausage fingers and kissed her again followed by a playful flick of the tongue on her nose Jack wanted to vomit in fact he did vomit a little but he was able to swallow it down Jack looked at Amy for confirmation and she just smiled a big pearly white smile all teeth present Jack noted have you ever been to the other side of the bridge Amy asked to the UP no Oh well you're in for a treat Amy said he, 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 Amy said. <clears throat> Jack sat upright his hands in his lap his mind spinning was this real Jack thought Sam's flip phone rang he answered hey you big beautiful fuck what are you doing right now nah fuck that get your ass over to the Dixie Saloon no no nah. just some guy from California mom wants to fuck him no really she won't stop i fucking jack's eyes got wide and amy laughed out loud yeah yeah fuck yeah see you soon sam snapped his phone shut fucking billy's coming really amy asked yep it's gonna get fun now sam replied jack looked at amy and mouthed the word what to which amy addressed the group and said how long has it been since the three of you hung out it's been forever billy's always out logging the fisherwoman answered Oh, so Billy's a lumberjack, Jack asked. Yeah, big fucker too, Sam said, stretching his little arms high in the air. Without asking, Amy brought everyone a fresh drink. When she handed Jack his, she held on to it, looked him in the eyes, and said, This never happens. Jack could only assume that she was referring to the gathering of all three of their drinking companions. A few commercial breaks later, the the door swung open, and the wind hit the drinkers but went unnoticed, the alcohol acting as antifreeze. Jack noticed that he was beginning to enjoy the company of the angry dwarf and his mom, and around the corner of the bar walked Billy. He was, as Sam had put it, a big fucker. Jack guessed his height about 6'5", with shoulders like he had football pads underneath his polo shirt. But it wasn't the breadth of his chest that amazed and captured Jack's gaze. It was the perfect double-D breasts residing under his shirt. They were perfect in every way, even proportionately. Jack's eyes darted from Billy's 5 o'clock shadow to his Adam's apple to his breasts and back up, trying to compute what he was seeing. He was speechless. Billy said hello to Sam and the fisherwoman In the soft-spoken voice he completely ignored jack billy took his seat to the left of the fisherwoman leaning on the bar with arms folded billy was a titan with the same sp- soft-spoken voice he called amy hey amy i'd like my usual please amy did not hear she was fixated on the tv a bit drunk herself billy spoke again a little louder hey amy Still no notice, so with the bass and gravel of a grizzly bear, the Hulk spoke in his full normal voice. "'Hey, Amy, drink!' <laughs> "'Oh, oh, hi, Billy,' she finally replied. "'Sorry about that. You know how much I love this show. "'It's fine. I Just like the usual, please,' Billy said using his soft initial voice. Amy hustled behind the bar in a way that she had not moved in all night. Jack took notice. "'Was this out of fear or respect?' The bartender finished her task and handed Billy uh, a large fish bowl filled with neon blue liquid and fruit hanging off every side. "'Thank you,' Billy said politely. "'What drink is that? It uh, looks pretty tasty, actually,' Jack said, pointing to the neon concoction. "'Shark bowl,' Amy said. Billy did not look at Jack, and after a moment, Jack took it upon himself to make an introduction, seeing as no one else was going to.'" Hi, Billy. I'm Jack. It's really nice to meet you, Jack said with a hand extended, waiting for a handshake. The Titan finally looked Jack and locked eyes. He was on the defensive. Jack had only assumed the hell that this group of pariahs must go through on a daily basis, so he did not look away or stare at Billy's remarkable breasts. After a short moment, Billy shook Jack's hand, completely engulfing it with a calloused paw. It would take two of Jack's fingers to equal the width of one of Billy's. Hello. Billy said, and then went back to drinking from two straws in the shark bowl. Now you know how I feel, Sam said to Jack. Jack nodded in agreement. The group sat in cold silence for a moment, but was interrupted by loud flatulence from Sam's ass. They all laughed. Jack laughed and left his perch and took a a few steps away from the bar toward the faded green felt of the pool table to hopefully avoid the odor that would follow such an eruption. With Jack's seat empty, Sam slid across and began making out with the fisherwoman, his mother. A chill ran up Jack's spine, and the sudden need to piss and vomit simultaneously hit him. Amy, where's the restroom? Jack asked. Through that door all the way to the back, last door on the left. Thanks. He followed the instructions and made his way down the log cabin-themed hallway to the restroom. Taking position in front of the urinal, Jack pissed. This was the first piss of the night, and after all the booze, he estimated that this particular piss would be valued at $50. Staring at the wall, he thought about his present drinking company and how no one, absolutely no one would believe him. How could he prove it? He remembered his phone. He pulled out his pocket and saw 22 missed calls from Beth and ignored them. Right now, he wanted to get his picture with the group and not have another three-hour-long conversation where nothing gets accomplished. Jack devised a plan as he washed his hands. He would go back out, buy a round of drinks, try to get everyone in a group pick, and to try to get everyone a group pick. He dried his hands and headed back to his headed back to his seat. When he opened the door from the hallway to the main bar area, they were gone. All the seats were vacant. Amy was still behind the bar, watching TV, mouth wide open, catching flies. He looked to his seat, and his jacket was empty, and his er, and his jacket was gone, and his beer was empty. Where'd they go? Where's my jacket? Jack asked, infuriated. What? They took your jacket? Are you sure? yes i'm sure jack said as he ran outside to try and catch them as he ran out to the cold night he almost slipped on some ice on the sidewalk Steadying his footing he saw a beautiful black 760 li bmw backing out of a parking space as all 12 cylinders of german machinery roared away sam the angry dwarf raised up out of the moonroof, holding his jacket in one hand and a tiny middle finger in the other thank you
2: Thank you, Justin. Great. I remember workshopping that. It was amazing. It was the best. So many happy faces. Um, Next, we have Regis Peoples. He is a philosopher and poet from Cleveland, Ohio, who received his BA in English and Philosophy from Howard University. He is fascinated with the idea of the self and what it is to be. His writing focuses on humans and unveiling their limitlessness as beings. He is a writer of all genres and aspires to create a work that is timeless and simultaneously destroys language and genre. He is currently applying for PhD programs in philosophy and working on finishing his long poem, Arboros, a poem that tells the tale of God wandering the universe until it decides to create life, erase their memories, and venture to Earth, where the God interacts with various characters and locations throughout literary history, such as Dr. Victor, Frankenstein, The Wizard of Oz, and even Plato's cave allegory. Aside from writing, Regis is also a dedicated hip-hop MC who goes by the alias Fusis. Did I pronounce that right? Friend? Okay. His obsession with the metaphysical and music allows him to create works that bounce between phonetic games and playfully restructured language. Regis Peoples.
4: what's going on? Uh, so I'm going to be reading from Uder Burros, which is my, uh, well, you just heard, it, so. I'll start with the Ars Poetica, which is, works as the foreword kind of to transition into the work, and then I'll, I'm just going to read from the beginning, so. Nula. Bird and Coleman, the depth of brass, twitching at 3 a.m., breaking the score, Poems in attempt or ten-minute swing, saturated with clams and questions, knowing versus knowledge, internal versus external. Similar to when they claim Demarian Miles lost their way. The world is made of perennial riffs of rhetoric, bleeding flats and sharps, unattuned by choice, unattained by choice. The silence of infinity, penetrating deflowered spit valves. Ninety-eight percent on account. Lyrical ACOGs aimed at tradition, legato in half measures, squeezing time signatures into life force, uroboros and attempt. Section 1. Lids leeching vastness, lights embraced, mucked pupils, gelatinous crust, unawakened cornea, gravitational hammock, floating in stasis, reaching for eternity, grabbing consciousness, sharp pains, breaths, no understanding of understanding. Planetary drifts, watching universal fireworks, stars becoming and unbecoming, galaxy to galaxy, until trembling, until the Milky Way, until our third passing, until feeling my way to Earth, after the second meteorite, after dinosaurs eaten by carnivorous plants following the freezing. Scouting the darkness, the blue of exotic reservoirs, the openness of once-swam robust nebulas, grasping plasma, I saw something fragile, Another from stardust, I tried to stop its bleeding. We formed fire in this mammalian soup, cauterizing the limb, I hold her hand. (coughs) Section 2. Victor's sorrows. When I looked around, I saw and heard of none like me. Was I a monster, a blot upon the earth from which all men fled and whom all disowned Mary Shelley's Frankenstein? A small city outside Geneva visited centuries ago when humans were humble. In the atrium of bones, a tattered research journal, Faustus' dormant scribbles, yearning my first love, Yasmine, pearl from the Indian Ocean, acquainted at Victor's conference, the ethics of human reanimation, a hulking lurk, oddly mythological, often approached us reluctantly, reeking of calamity, mildew, and rigor mortis, a pinch of Limburger past its prime, the origin of the cheese itself most likely affixed to its undercarriage. Victor utters horrors, the fiend creates more, Thus is our friendship. One day out of nothing more than pity, I left the fiend behind a letter. To the fiend, Victor plagued you dearly, oh pure-hearted beast. The world has cast you a monster when you merely mimic our humanity. We're one in the same, animations hunting for agency. No business besides our own, yet we remain sleepless. If only we could have met, shriveling together for warmth, provided you textile, Allowing your blossoms in this rain, depth and decay plague us continually for all of eternity. Sincerely, X. I recall the research journal Delaire mentioned closer than far. My next stop was Dr. Faustus. infernal Laboratory. Cipicasus, uh, negmagus, familiar, enola, cess, and nobis veritas. From Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. Crossing into Faustus' dwelling, Stale air and salutations, Dr. Faustus' first words. What is sin? I tell him of a great book acknowledging one sin, alone, theft. To kill is to steal a life, and to lie is to steal the truth. Faustus digests my lore in disgust, bridging my rhetoric to Satan, standing seven feet from the crust, chin postured by pride. He carries a surgical knife, indiscriminately excavating, turning obsessions into black chrysanthemums. A self-regenerating entity, my main head mandates regrowth and vessel functionality. Resting in the guest quarters that night, my main head mandates. Attending my first dream since my last lie about dreaming, I converse with my other self in a familiar space called Inanus. Other self, the only sin is mediocrity. Martha Graham, self, what is sin? Other self, you are sin. Self, well, what am I? Other self, you are yourself, of course, and I am you. We are us, thus sin. Self, if I am sin, then how do I know that I am? Other self, we think, therefore, you are, no? Self, my thoughts confide in this marsupial relationship. Other self, I'm growing tired of this jibber-jabber. Self, stay close and ready to transfer consciousness if need be. Faustus approached us at sunrise. Faustus, answer my delectable associate or forever become enslaved to the scrutiny of our mortal God. Self, sin is I and I am sin. My existence itself is sin itself. Faustus, how does one know that they are sin? Of sin maybe, from sin of course, but sin itself? Self, I told myself in a dream last night while traversing strange lands in my head where the route things grow like faith in Inanus. The Rage of Science. Calligraphy may well be simply an artistic version of another form, that is, ideograms which make up the poem, but then not only does it reflect the character and temperament of the artist, but also betrays his heart rate, his breathing. That's from Dai Saji. A Master Calligrapher. He swiftly lacerates one head, another from my forearm, eyes red, a raging akuma, twitching and foaming, hysterical laughter, memories of her claret, my first theft, egg washed in my red spirit. That day Lucy died in vain. I acquired her breakfast and then crushed her skull. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Regis. Aside from her fascination with the human body, Esther S. Lee is an MFA candidate in Otis' college graduate writing program. She is currently working on a collection of short stories centered on the practice of divination and how it affects the human psyche, though she occasionally flirts with the idea of writing poetry. She is currently located in Los Angeles, where she would like to stay put for a while after years of nomadic living. Esther S. Lee.
1: I'm not as tall as Regis is. so. Thank you, Angelina, for that great introduction. The excerpt I'm about to read from is from a short story aptly titled, What is Love? And it begins with a protagonist who has finally given in to social pressure, i.e. friends and family, and has chosen to sign up for a service called Love Casting, despite the protagonist's debatably happy single status. So... It's astonishing how far love casting has come in only five years, and Alok shouldn't feel so floored, but he is. The dominant agent is fluttering around him, peeling the wax paper off several nodes and attaching them to his temples and one right over his heart. A heart monitor, clipped to his left index finger, interrupts the pattern Alok is tapping out on his knee with his own soft electronic cadence. Both machines are going to be used to catalog physiological responses to Alok's verbal answers, and the camera tripod setup will capture his micro Because even though we ask for the truth, learn behaviors deter us from following through with it, the agent explains. She slides over on her rolling stool to the double monitor setup and types for a while into the computer. She's moved on, nattering about some romantic fluff, but Alok is only lif- listening with half an ear, too nervous to pay her any mind. He's read all the theories about Domina and Love Casting and how the company has started to change the concept of romance and relationships despite the program's infancy. Of how truth and sharing information upfront is changing people's perceptions of long-term relationships and the diminishing fear of, quote, being stuck. Though the medical journals on how Domina might revolutionize the medical field, exterminating autosomal recessives or at least reducing the chances of genetic disorders cropping up, sounds like something out of a sci-fi novel, Alok thinks some scientists imagine that it will lo- what it will look like in 10, 20, 50 years. Perhaps pairing people together based on their medical history will become a norm, he imagines. Of course, that means there are just as many naysayers as there are well-wishers. A good chunk of the US thinks that what Domina's doing is terribly invasive and hardly romantic at all. A lot of people argue on the side of love at first sight and the sanctity of it, but casters, or the pro-love casting faction, retort right back asking why it couldn't happen between castmates. After all, it's a simply high-octane analytical supercomputer version of matchmaking, or so Alok tells himself. And unlike the old-fashioned methods, there were no negative outcomes he could think of, So there was nothing to worry about at all, right? I mean, it's interesting because it seems like most people don't care about what happens in information day to day, but throw in their romantic lives in the mix and suddenly, poof, everyone's Edward Snowden. Can you lead forward a little bit? The nodes on your left temple need to be readjusted. With a start, Alok shifts on the stool, inching closer to the agent as she pulls the sticky electrode from his temple before reapplying it to what feels like the exact same position as it was in before. He blinks as the machines whir and beep in time with one another, one scratching jagged lines onto graph paper. The agent ahas, twirling a knob, white noise of the machines, elegizing his love life in dings. The noise fills the room. It's cavernous, disproportionately large, considering the only occupants are the dominant agent and Alok, and the smattering of equipment, two monitors on rolling carts and an unidentified machine perched precariously between them, the studio lights, the camera tripod, and the stool he sat on along with hers. The walls painted a flat white, look even brighter beneath the glare of the lights. Alok had expected to be ushered into a small cubicle-like room, as he had been when he started forecasting, but it seems love casting is a different beast altogether. The office is in Midtown, the storefront on the ground floor with large windows and a fancy window front display, but past the TV monitors and touchscreens and the hard boxy couch chairs in the lobbies are a series of rooms, one of which he was ushered into. His room is white, blank, though there's nothing to see, Alok continues looking around the room at the machines, at the walls, at the floor, also painted white, anything so he doesn't have to be the one to break the silence. Thankfully, the agent does first all right Mr. Law let's d- dispense with the formality shall we call me Candace is it okay if I call you a loke from her lips to his ears Candace is all but Americanized his name the lovely round tones flattened all nasal it's a loke he corrects her the sound closer to ah in August and loat in float than her a loke or a lock. a Candace says with a smile it's close enough after I turn on the cameras, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. They'll be the baseline questions from which I'll mark any physical ties, uh, ticks, indicators that normally she wouldn't be present in her everyday behavior. No questionnaire? Candace cocked her head. Questionnaire? The only information he has to go off of are Ben and Adams, his high school friends, the experiences, but that was also five years ago. They never mentioned anything about a camera or nodes and heartbeats, but then again, Alok had not been interested in love casting then. Even if they had mentioned it, he wouldn't remember it. So dismissive of the idea, was he? Do you think you're going to find your future partner by filling out a bunch of forms? Candace asks. Much of her questions are rhetorical, locus learning. Besides, that's so old school. She cuts the cavalier undertone with another flap of her hand. Do you remember that online dating craze? One of the biggest reasons why it phased out was because it was too surface level. Too many variables. A woman on birth control and a woman who's not? Preferences don't match up. Hormones are out of balance. And the questions, she groans. Talk about the questions. Who actually filled out all of it? And even if you did, how can you guarantee what someone said was the truth? Allo Shrug nods, unsure if Candice wants a response. This is much better. Trust me, she proclaims, adding an afterthought. Yup. She pops the pee. Now say your name for the camera, please, in 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. <coughs> Alok, lol. His voice carries around the whiteness of the room. Great, Candace croons. Now your age, of, your age and date of birth in the year, day, month format, please. His 3220 redacted, 1408 receives more saccharine praise. Have you already sent in the DNA portion, or will you need to do that today? Alok shakes his head. His spit, filled to the marked line on a plastic test tube, was mailed out already as of two days ago. He had almost backed out of this appointment this morning, but the thought of his mother badgering him with friends of friends' daughters and how so-and-so will make a great wife is just enough to make him go through with it. Also, having to pay the no-show fine on top of the comp, but only if present lab tests give him extra nudge he needs to get out the door. And has anyone told you what the DNA is for? Alok does. He picked up the kit several months ago after lunch with his sister and and his um, niece. The desire to go through it with it evaporated after a series of articles put him off the idea of love casting, but his sister's meddling, it's just an appointment, she says, set the wheels in motion. The box, marked with a bright cerulean, more or less explained the reasoning behind the series of tests he would undergo, or is rather undergoing, in a cheerful font. The science of attraction is scrawled on the underside of the lid. It explains if juvenilely, even if before the physical features, attraction is based on olfactory chemical signals or pheromones. Attraction is something the humans use to quantify the survival instincts embedded in genetic code, but really attraction sometimes stems from the desire to mate with others with a different immune system from their own. It's interesting, but hardly new information to look, already quite familiar with information since middle school awesome candace flashes her teeth at him their color the same white sterility of the walls all right alok ready to get started in earnest three months pass and alok still hadn't has still hasn't been matched with anyone just the program dialing into your specific preferences candace assures him over the phone he can picture her easy shrug and the flip of her hair blonde and pale over an equally alabaster shoulder It's not easy finding your perfect cast match. And sometimes it takes a while because maybe the right person hasn't signed up yet to be a caster. So he goes on living his life the way he had before Love Casting until one morning he wakes up with an email from Domina, the Love Cast division. Sitting on the corner of his bed, he opens the email. You've got a match, reads the subject heading. The profile is scrubbed clean of any identifying information. No names, birthdays, addresses, though what is there is more than enough. There's a photo in the top right corner, the same head-on profile he took during session with Candace, but Alok saves that for last and skims through the findings. His match is fiscally stable, with a healthy family background and very few genetic anomalies, although there is a propensity for the women of her family to be diagnosed with breast cancer in their late 40s. Most of her family is well-educated, and many have secondary and post-secondary educations, herself included. She's currently a graduate student at Redacted, and she works full-time at Redacted. All in all, a strong background, a point Alok made sure to be clear in his interview with Candace. His leg is jiggling up and down as he scrolls back up to the top of the photo. It's a plain headshot from the shoulders on up, but even without a full body photo, what he sees is pleasing. The woman looks young, maybe 25 or 26. Rich, dark hair curling lightly over collarbones, frames of pale face. Her eyes peer back at him from behind square frames, their chunkiness serving to highlight how positively blue her eyes are. A stubborn nose and chin, though her lips are quirked into a mischievous smile. She's is pretty, alope thinks, though there is a part of him that immediately turns to his mother and how disappointed she will be when she finds out his match is not an Indian woman. But it isn't as though he is any more interested in being set up again with friends of friends' daughters any more than love casting. So he'll reserve judgment and telling his mother until he has a chance to meet the matching person. And then this is a few days later. Despite her proclivity, proclivity, proclivity to hide her figure beneath layers of fabric, Alok can see what she, can see when she walks up to his picnic table. There's something very Renaissance about her body. The contours of her body, dramatic hills and valleys from the way her breasts hang, leading to a nipped waist, flaring back onto her hips. Pale skin, milky in the sunlight, gives him an impression of translucence. When his eyes flick up back to her face, her lower lip is clenched between her teeth, and she's staring right at him as she thinks that he's got the answer to a question he hasn't figured out how to ask just yet. Hello, she says, stretching the word out, a drooping line of pulled taffy between them. Hello, he says back. I'm Charlie, and her hand is invading the space between them. And that's it.
2: Our next writer is George Fakaris, who grew up in the San Fernando Valley and has an MA in English from Cal State Northridge. Thank
5: you. <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, all right. Uh, thank you all for coming. And uh, God, I'm so freaking nervous. Part of me. <laughs> like, I, I, Seriously. Um, Okay, so for a little while, I've been working on a mock epic poem. And I've been having a lot of fun with it. Uh, The title is Drones and God, and that's what I'll be reading from. Uh, The excerpt, which is very brief, uh, begins as Cal, uh, one of the protagonists, is listening to the last voice message in a series. And this last voice message is very threatening. Uh, A villain named Jam threatens Cal and Cal's lover, Snow Leopard, And then Cal goes to meet the threat and on his way uh, a sense of the city which is a version of LA uh, that he lives in is drawn out. So here we go. The final voicemail was from Cal's ex-compadre, Jam. I just got brain surgery, Jam said, to enhance my assassin prowess and I'm insane with the urge to murder someone I once cared for. So... If you don't show up at Bodybuilders right now, I'm telling my brother where your loving lover lives. Then Cal robbed an actor gently for money to make a call and made it. His voice was gravel and grit. He said to Snow Leopard, my love, my day is crazy and it might spill into yours. She was writing a poem. She was tracing memory's edge. And she said like music, I can handle anything, darling. When will you come to me? Salty beads were at Cal's eye rims. Be careful, SL, please, and kill if you have to. And after I brawl, he said. He hung up and ran through Chinatown to Sunset, then Hyperion. Snow Leopard worried about him and sharpened her claws. Cal saw the street morph to a giant, slick rattlesnake and the pill-blue sky stretch and breathe. The city sprawled inside itself. Lies, truths, ancient accidents, undiscovered synapses, indefinite binges, purple orgies and fiery mysteries jiggled everywhere. People strove to make the most of it. The city mayor, heroically, decided to get involved in a mess of successes and failures that were impossible to separate from each other. A gallery owner faced a litany of ethics questions because of a renewed deal with Warhawks, She gave enchanting but impossible answers inspired by her latest exhibition, Architecture, Affect, Anarchy, and a speed bike connoisseur had seen it and thought it flimsy. Inside an illegal makeup lab, immediately before cops arrived, a beagle completed an obstacle course full of puzzles that rouged his face. The beagle was saved and lived well without being experimented on again. Breakless teens, proling the historic core, used paint infused with microchips to decorate alley walls, and people who saw the walls could connect their brain pieces to the art and be taught new conspiracy theories by it and pay for more information or protection. The future was invented twice over, then more Helicopters bombarded above the freeways. A prayer was answered by coincidence. Picks of cracked glass were discovered to be treasure maps, and the discoverers had a conversation about war. One of them quoted blockbusters to put bloodshed in perspective. The conversation ended with a decision to engage for profit. A group of philosophers believed secretly nothing was wrong. A fire raged and in the flames a strong, handsome devil flexed and announced the first question is which race? A bike cop helped a person and hurt another. Lives were enriched by drug abuse. Remains became oil faster. The chain gang beat on and Cal leaned into the breeze and Jam put a fat chunk of steroids in himself and bench pressed a ton more than once, and remembered being, re- being in rehab with Cal, and Snow Leopard wrote her poem while her cat curled into a fuzzy logic of paws at her feet, and old Bill Code became a marionette, and J-Code spied on Cal, and Sophie spied on Jay, and a nail gun in a construction site was picked up by a woman who was a war veteran, and who should have been cared for more by the nation's health care system, and she fired it, the shot went through Cal's heart. He died and toppled. His body rolled on the sidewalk. He got up regardless. Walked into the old gym Strong.
2: Thank you, George. Our final reader is Kevin Thomas. He was born in Portland, Oregon, and moved to Los Angeles 10 years ago in order to make tons of money as a screenwriter. After being wildly unsuccessful in Hollywood, Kevin decided to channel his depression into prose. He has had short stories, published in a few obscure magazines no one's heard of. He recently completed his first novel, Park Rose, which one reader called soul-crushingly depressing, and was awarded the Board of Governors First Book Fellowship at Otis College of Art and Design. He is the recipient of the academic excellence award in graduate writing for 2017, the highest honor given to graduating students. Please welcome, sorry, Kevin Thomas. Uh,
6: That was depressing, sorry. I didn't write that, she just made it up. Um, It's pretty rude. Man, I didn't know we were acting. Everybody's like acting up here. All right, so I'm gonna read a section from about halfway through my novel, Park Rose. Um, just set the scene a little bit. Greg is the main character. His be- him and his best friend Neil are having dinner with uh, Greg's half sister and her husband, Brian. Uh, the boys are halfway through their last year of high school, and they both play basketball on the basketball team. Um, Neil's family has completely fallen apart and Greg is well, Greg's family is well on the way um, also Brian is a teacher at the high school and both Greg and Neil are probably or definitely on drugs in this scene uh, I think that's all you need so. Greg's hands fidget under the table as Brian finishes the prayer for supper as he calls it with a meek amen so meek it almost goes unheard Neil's eyes are still closed, the black flames of his bangs hanging curtain-like over his face. Greg, Greg clears his throat, attempting to bring the bard back from the nether regions of the supplicatory seance. Tree branches scrape against the new windows. A half ass wind blows against the double panes. A hum emanates from somewhere, and it may be from Neil, but then again, it may be coming from the new Kenmore 4000 dual-door high-capacity refrigerator in the adjacent kitchen with the bay window and a dining nook, humming away in all its sparkling, fresh-out-of-the-plastic-wrapping newness. Food is passed around as pleasant sounding words are plied into the void, looks good, smells great, we're so lucky, and room for the family to grow. Words learned from dinner parties of the past when real adults carried on conversations about really important things and words were punctuated with demonstrative hand gestures so heavy jewelry could bob from earlobes and jangle from spotted wrists with sagging skin. Shasta brought out the gold rim goblets, the gold rim plates, and the gold-plated silverware her father's mother left to Shasta when she went to be with the Lord. She only brings it out on special occasions, she says. She knows it's a little much, but sometimes it's just nice to have pretty things, she says. She wouldn't dare have the plates out when her and Greg's mother comes over. And Greg and Shasta share a look that says, We both know the gold rims are a bit much don't we that says we both know you shasta are a fake bitch that says we both know you greg are a depressive piece of shit that screams we are merely tied by blood that runs thin shasta leans towards neil who hasn't murdered a word to pass him the steaming mashed potatoes hey you guys doing okay brian says just swell, Brian, Greg says Neil robotically takes a helping of mashed potatoes and passes the porcelain bowl with matching gravy boat to Greg steam wafts from the creamy, round edges of the buttery potatoes Neil tilts his face into the steam smiles so Neil, how was your winter break? Brian asks, doing that thing where he looks but doesn't really look to see if Neil knows, knows what he means Shasta squeezes Brian's hand at the table Neil chuckles to himself Greg clears his throat Pops his jaw. It's okay, Greg. They have the right to ask, don't they? I am a minor, after all, Neil says, and punches a spoonful of mash into the smiling mouth below black eyes. As they told me at the psych ward, where I was watched like an alien specimen for 24 full hours, you are a minor, Neil Chisler, a minor who only has the right not to kill himself, they told me. They stressed the word not. Imagine... He doesn't mean to pry, do you, Brian? Shasta says. I don't, really. I'm sorry. It's just the. after the, you know, the stealing of the car and all. Yeah, Greg says, and shoves a fork full of potatoes into his speaking device. The silence hangs dead in the air. Neil chokes on a bone. Excuse me. My vacation was amazing, Mr. Brian. You can just call me Brian. We're not at school, after all. So it seems we are not, Brian, here in this lovely home. Neil takes a moment to take in his surroundings possibly for the first time I am a minor, did I tell you that? I am 17 and won't be 18 until after I graduate high school so, as it turns out, Brian I am not allowed, legally speaking to do much, of anything, of my own volition until said appointed time where I am to assume it would be perfectly okay for me to kill myself more potatoes, please these are simply delicious and just look at that damn gravy boat it's enormous (laughs) they've been calling him the bard at school, you guys shouldn't he speak shakespearean then shasta says as it turns out miss shasta neil looks to brian for approval on a semi-formal addressment of shasta i have never read any of the bard's work nor have any of i must assume my teammates we are merely soldiers in parkrose's multicultural basketball army and as coach says so eloquently neil trails off his eyes unblinking sweat forms along his hairline Neil, Shasta says. Brian and Shasta wait mid-bite for Neil to, Wins will be our only salvation, Neil blurts out. Shasta gulps down water, looks to Greg for support. He didn't really say that, did he? More or less, sister, more or less. Greg scrapes mashed potatoes off the fork with his teeth. Neil, I'm sorry. I wasn't trying to. Well, it's just, you see, we're all just, all of us at school, I mean the teachers, the counselors, we're all pretty worried you're taking the stuff happening with your dad very hard. And we'd like you to know we are here, there, at school for you, anytime you feel like talking the stuff neil says shasta kicks Brian onto the table greg chokes down a large swallow of half chewed pork chop he had previously slathered in buttery potatoes i understand you are all very kind neil says i am thankful for everyone's concern your family all permutations of it have been very instrumental in assisting our family into and through this precarious time we the chiselers find ourselves imagine there is silence Silence echoes across the table. It whispers to the winds outside, blowing down with the rain from the dark, cloud-filled sky. There are trees swaying out there, swaying and waiting for spring when their leaves will be resurrected. Greg can't muster the strength to move his massive pupils, the lead and green marbles, over to Neil. Can we talk about something else? Sure, Greg, Chasta says. Brian told me you had a good game on Tuesday. Oh, yes, Chasta. I was in the zone, Greg states. The zone! The zone! Neil says (laughs) eyes widening what is the zone Greg what is the zone what is the zone tell them Greg Neil demands tell them what the zone is Greg puts his silverware down pops his jaw wipes his hands on the cloth napkins which will have to be washed in the new washing machine blinks intently slowly the zone capital Z the zone is where everything ceases to matter Shasta It is where all you hear is your own breathing. It is where you feel every groove of the ball, every dimple. It is where your body extends in every direction, filling all empty space inside the gym, filling every wrong move, every wrong thought, every wrong action with perfection. It is
0: where I want to live. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.